0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. I was very happy to see that Pastor Tim is here today, though he's been very sick, as was noted. And so I was asked to preach and I was very glad for the opportunity And I wanted to preach this sermon, this particular sermon today, because of my observation that there are many Gospels floating around out there today. There are many so-called preachers of righteousness that you can dial into. You can turn the TV on, you can turn on YouTube, you can watch them, you can read them. And I'm convinced that many of us here are or will be tempted to turn away from Christ at some point. We've seen this happen to people who we love, to family members, to friends. We've seen it happen to people from this church. They turn away from their love of Christ and, after some, and they follow after some other teaching, some other man. And I think that the strongest temptations come in the form of lies that are mixed with a great deal of truth. This is something that's Fairly evident, right? If your child is going to get you to believe a lie, they're going to mix it with a fair bit of truth. The most believable lies always have a great deal of truth mixed in with them. And so I hope as we look at our passage today, uh, it'll help us to sort out the difference between truth and lies, and it'll be an occasion for us all to turn our minds and hearts to Jesus Christ and to delight in Him and to trust in Him. So, if you have your Bibles with you today, uh, please turn to 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God." For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy. In the previous chapter, Paul contrasts the ministry of death and condemnation that came through the law of Moses with the ministry of righteousness through the Spirit. This is the ministry that he claims that he himself has and that he's presenting to the Corinthians. Where did he get this ministry? From God, right? You'll remember the story of him on the road and hearing, seeing a vision, being blinded by the vision and hearing God speak to him. So he's received this, this ministry from God and he says, we do not lose heart. And why not? Why does Paul not lose heart? He does, after all, um, suffer many temptations to lose heart. He, uh, if you know anything about the ministry of Paul, you know that he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was Im- abandoned, he was betrayed. He went through a great deal of suffering and misery. And yet he is convinced that he has, does not need to lose heart. He does not lose heart because he's convinced that the one who gave him the message will cause the growth. Now, your pastors and elders are regularly tempted to lose heart. Jake led devotions for the elders this past uh, elders meeting. And it was very sweet. It was a very sweet devotional. And Jake read the exhortation from Jesus uh, in the Gospels where Jesus exhorts his disciples, his followers, not to worry. After all, God clothes the flowers of the field with splendor He feeds the birds of the year. How much more does God care for you than flowers and for birds? So don't worry. Don't worry. And so as Jake read that and opened it up for us, I could just see the men be encouraged. It was very sweet. So just like that, Paul in this passage is not discouraged because he's convinced that that God will care for his ministry, that God will cause the growth. And so he speaks boldly, and he speaks confidently of the ministry that he has. Now, you might say, you might object at this point that it's all well and good for Paul to be confident, to be encouraged, because after all, he did hear from God directly, right? He saw a vision, he had a, a miraculous, he was blinded and then he was made, uh, was given back his sight. Our pastors and elders weren't given their, their ministry directly by God, nor did, um, <clears throat> nor did I or you as we try to uh, faithfully speak to our friends and neighbors about Jesus Christ. We didn't receive, none of us received a vision from heaven like Paul. While all that may be true, our confidence actually does come from the same place as Paul's. We may not have had a vision from heaven, but we are trusting in the sure word of God just like Paul did. This is a confidence that preachers can have, but it's a confidence that every Christian can have. And how do we have this confidence? How do we grab a hold of it? And to open that up, I want to look at verse 2. And I think it's it's best to sort of split it up. It kind of comes in two parts, the first half and the second half. The first half says, "But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God." So, one of the first ways you have confidence is by a clean conscience, by speaking the truth with a clean conscience. We aren't crafty. We're not perverting the word of God. Paul here is being both defensive and offensive. This is, this is a defense of himself and his own ministry. He's saying, I'm not manipulating you. I'm speaking as truthfully and forthrightly and openly as I know how to do. And he's presenting the gospel to us. But he's also making an accusation about those who are crafty and who do pervert the word of God. Watch out for those guys. It's a warning that's no less true then than it is today. Did I get that right? No less true than... Yeah. I wanna, okay. So I want to stop here and make a distinction that is very important for this sermon. We've gotten to a place in our culture uh, in regards to truth, uh, well, that we don't believe it, that there is such a thing as truth anymore. Everything is just personal. And so if we don't like what somebody says or if that person makes us feel bad in how he says it or she says it, we say that or we think that we can just discount them. We don't need to listen to them. So that on the one hand, we truth is completely personal and bound up. And so we believe people who maybe appear uh, helpful but are saying things that are not true just because we're attracted to them, we, we buy into their personality. On the other hand, we've also had it hammered into our heads that personal integrity and character don't matter. You can be a good person, worthy of leadership, regardless of what you actually do or say as a personal matter. Democrats said this about Bill Clinton, and Republicans say it now about Donald Trump. It doesn't matter how he gets the job done just so long as he gets it done. And so I want us to recognize what Paul is doing in this passage. Paul is claiming to have integrity first and foremost. He's not a sneaky guy. He's not a con man. He's speaking the truth content wise. The message of what he says is true. And he's not doing it in some kind of manipulative, underhanded way. He has a clean conscience as he speaks it to us. Now, what does this have to do with false gospels and false preachers of righteousness? As I said earlier, there's a lot to pick from today. We know this. And the one I want to focus on today is uh, one who you've heard, from, uh, heard about from this pulpit a number of times, I think, before. Uh, and it's this guy, Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian professor of psychology. And he's particularly dangerous in a number of ways that I hope to open up. But first, why do I care? Why do I, why do I single him out? Well, a couple of reasons why I think he's attractive to us in, these, in the pews and, and here, uh, but also attractive to many, many people, uh, many Christians in this country and around the world. First of all, he takes religion and spirituality very seriously. He's an avowed uh, Darwinist uh, evolutionist. He believes that. Very seriously, and um, and is is fundamental to his belief system. But he also takes religion and spirituality very seriously, which is kind of like a breath of fresh air if you're if you if you're dealing with people who are completely secular, right? He also takes the Bible and Jesus very seriously. Uh, his lectures on the Old Testament and his comments about Jesus and the New Testament are. Um, uh, very gripping. They're captivating. Um, And we'll get to why that is in a minute. He also emphasizes the importance of always speaking the truth. And he does that himself. He exemplifies that himself. He he tries as best as he knows how to speak the truth. And that's very arresting uh, to us in our time. And he also says very common sense things like, Uh, that we would agree with, like boys can't become girls and girls can't become boys, right? Uh, He says very common sense things like clean your room, you know? If you want to start changing the world, start by cleaning your room. And so he has gained a lot of authority and a huge following in this particular time in history because he comes across as the real deal. Even if he's wrong, which I'll get to in a minute, You don't get the sense that he's being underhanded or manipulative. He's telling you what he really thinks as straightforwardly as he knows how. Needless to say, that is not the norm today. We are constantly being massaged from morning to night. If you turn on the television for 30 seconds, you're going to watch a commercial that's trying to manipulate you. This is something that's so common that we don't even think about it anymore, how often Messages, images come blaring at us, trying to manipulate us, to get us to do something. We just sort of take it as the air that we breathe. It's just in the water. It's all around us. So TV ads, shows, movies, magazines, all of it is manipulation, trying to get us to buy things, I don't know why this particular example came to mind as I was preparing this sermon, but I also thought back to being a college freshman at, at, uh, I happened to, my freshman year I was at George Washington University in D.C., and it's still, I still think occasionally back and marvel at how much money and propaganda was poured into however many freshman students there were that year into thinking that into getting us to think that we were rock stars you know that we were like the smartest people on the face of the planet and what for for coming there right so that dollars could go there but they i mean they just pulled out all the stops i mean i remember there were concerts from pretty big name acts that were just for us i mean and and all kinds of free stuff you know free stuff it was just an, a, a barrage telling me how amazing I was for being here, how special I was. And of course, this kind of manipulation is not at all far from the church either, is it? I mean, wow. Right? It's one of the reasons, I think, why um, we, the church of Jesus Christ, or, huh, I shouldn't say that. I should say churches in this country have lost so much moral authority because it's clear that what they're doing is manipulation, right? It's, it's clear that what they're doing is gimmicks. Um, yeah, M- Pastor Carell um, has a kind of a funny sort of draw the line thing Um you know, he thinks like, okay, when a, when a church has started giving pony rides, it's like it's all over. Might as well call it quits, right? The pony rides are it. <laughs> um. <clears throat> and we're tempted. As pastors and elders, we're tempted to, to gimmicks, right? This is, not, this is not a foreign temptation. Uh, we're trying, we want to speak the truth, but man, we want people in the door. This is not a, not a foreign temptation. It's a temptation that we have to resist. And it's, it's this that Paul is denying. He says, I did not walk in craftiness. I did not adulterate. I do not adulterate the word of God. We're not massaging you. We're not manipulating you. We're speaking the truth. So that's the first half of of verse two. The second half says this, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So we don't manipulate you, we don't twist the scriptures, we're not trying to con you. We speak the truth as boldly and openly as we know how and as long as we stick to the truth, we have the very best protection that there is, which is to say a clean conscience, right? If you stick to the truth, you got a clean conscience and that is the best protection. So what does this phrase mean, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God? I think, there's, I think the simple meaning is that it means putting ourselves out in front of others for judgment. It means subjecting what we say, both the content of our message and ourselves, to, other, to another man's conscience. I don't, I, think, I'm, I don't know what else it could mean. It's submitting ourselves to another person's conscience so that they can judge whether what we said is true and so that they can judge whether we've spoken to them forthrightly or in an underhanded way. Now, this is something that all Christians can and must do. We must speak as truthfully as you, you must speak, we must speak as truthfully as we know how to do, come what may. Now this is really hard, right? It's really hard to just speak the truth regularly because we don't like to be judged negatively. And of course, that's far too tame a way to put it. We would do anything to avoid being judged harshly or looked down on, right? We'll do anything for people to think well of us. The last thing we want is people To think that we're stupid, that we're harsh, that we're mean, that we're hateful, that we're critical. We don't want that. And so this is why we recognize Paul's courage in the pages of the New Testament, right? He spoke the truth, come what may, and regardless of who you are, regardless of your background, regardless of your religion, regardless of your philosophy, you can honor that. You can honor a man who speaks the truth regardless of the consequences, He's got a clean conscience, and and you can honor that. And it's precisely why I think Jordan Peterson has a kind of moral authority that many pastors in this country do not have. He's willing to say what he thinks is true, come what may, right? Come what may. So if you've listened to Peterson or read him much, and there's plenty on the internet uh, to sort through, you, you actually might recognize that what I've said so far sounds very similar to what he might say. You might recognize that, um, that what I've said so far might very well have come from the pages of one of his books. One of his regular exhortations, in fact, I don't know what rule it is, rule number something in his 12 rules, um, is to always tell the truth so far as you understand it. That's something that anyone can live by, right? Right? And so Peterson has the courage of his, of his convictions, and many pastors do not. Is it any wonder that he has such a following? But as you will we'll see, one of the reasons that Peterson has uh, a draw is that he calls you to submit to nobody and nothing. He calls people to glory in their own intelligence and in their own sophistication. And so I want to stop right here and give a little spoiler about where I'm headed. Okay? Jordan Peterson does not have Christ. It's all well and good for you to have integrity and the courage of your convictions and to speak what you believe. All those things are good. You know, natural revelation is good. Uh, the, the things that we can learn about the world just through things like honor that we, you, know, you can recognize as a natural man. Those are good things. But if you don't have Christ, you have Nothing. When God says, let there be light, and he shines a light in our hearts, what has he done? He has given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that's where I'm going. Okay, we'll get there. But first, verses 3 and 4 are kind of like an aside. They're very connected, very connected with what what he's saying here, but they're kind of like an aside before you get to the punch in verses 5 and 6. So Paul, verses 1 and 2, is not crafty or sneaky. He speaks the word of God boldly and openly, commending himself to every man's conscience. And so in verse 3 and 4, uh, verses 3 and 4 really stick out given what's come before. Paul just got done saying he was commending himself to every man's conscience. He claims to have been speaking the truth boldly and courageously, come what may. And he was sincerely putting himself up out there to be judged. And so verses, verse 3 in the first half of verse 4 sounds like he's kind of reversing himself. It sounds like, okay, I'm putting myself out there, but then what? It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see. So why do I say that that feels like he's going back on what he said before. Well, he's putting himself out there, but then he says, well, if you don't believe me, you're blind, right? Does that that sound like he's putting himself out there? In other words, Paul's saying that he's, he's willing to sincerely put himself out there, but if you don't believe him, you're the one who's blind. How can both things be true? I think the answer is simply in the distinction between the messenger and the message itself. In verse 2, Paul is inviting the Corinthians to judge his personal integrity. He's not underhanded, he's not manipulative, he's speaking boldly and and, and as openly as he knows how. But in verse 3 and the first half of verse 4, Paul is speaking about his message, which is the light of the gospel. So it is one thing to, to judge that Paul has integrity in what he says. It's clear that he's speaking the truth as openly and as he knows how to do, and, and his well-known suffering in order to get the message out testifies to that fact. But then we come to the content of the message preached, just like we have to look at the content of what Jordan Peterson says regardless of how we might judge him and his character as a man. And what is the message Paul preached the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He preached Jesus Christ as Lord. It is this message, Jesus Christ as Lord, that is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? It it answers in verse 4. Because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see. And brothers and sisters, this is where Paul and Jordan Peterson part ways. This is where Paul parts ways with Muhammad, with Confucius, with Buddha, with the Dalai Lama. This is, where, this is where he parted ways with the rabbis of his time. He preached Christ. They reject that Jesus Christ is Lord. They reject the truth that the glory of God can be found can only be found in the face of Jesus Christ. They might believe many things about the Bible. They may believe that Jesus existed. They may believe that he was a great teacher, that he was a prophet. They may believe that he performed miracles. They may believe all kinds of things about Jesus. And yet they still deny him because they deny that he is the Christ Do you remember Jesus' words to Thomas after the resurrection? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do any of you remember what Thomas' response was? Just shout it out if you remember. This is after the resurrection. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. What was Thomas' response? My My Lord and my God. None of those religious leaders that I listed have said that. This is what we call the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There is no other way for man to come to God. God is not provided any other way. Now why? What, why is this believing so central to coming to Jesus Christ, to coming to God, to a right understanding of God? After all, Many, many people are trying. We, many people recognize that we need to get to God somehow. We desperately need God. And so why is this believing so central? To understand why this is so, we need to understand some things about the nature of saving faith. Think about verses 3 and 4. What does it mean for the gospel to be veiled to the perishing? How can how is it possible for someone to miss the good news? Is it because they're unloving? Is it because they're dishonest or hateful or proud, vain, greedy? No. They are unbelieving. They don't believe it. They cannot see the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They do not have Christ. So, what is what does this mean? You've probably heard the classic formulation of faith before. You've heard faith is comprised of three things. Knowledge. That means that you know what the Bible says. Maybe you've read the Gospels. Maybe you've read portions of the Bible. You have the knowledge of the message of the Bible. The knowledge of who Jesus was and what He has claimed in the Scriptures in your head. Right? Knowledge. Then there's assent. I've read it, and I actually also believe that it's true, objectively true. Right? Both of those things are important, knowledge and assent. I've, I know what it says, and I believe it's true. The last element is trust. And before I get there, I just want to point out that the wise men of this world don't get there. They don't get the trust. They might have knowledge, they might even have assent to some of the truths, but they don't get to the last one. Trust means that I not only believe that this is objectively true, but I also believe that the truth is not just out there, it is for me. This third element of faith, of what it means to have faith, is usually where the affections lie. It's where the affections enter in, our loves and our desires. This is where we delight in Jesus for his beauty and his goodness and his holiness, his righteousness. This is where we submit to him as our Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know. It doesn't matter how wise you are in the world's eyes. The more I've contemplated Jordan Peterson, the more dangerous I think he is. And why? Because he takes the Bible very seriously and he plunders it. It's like he plunders it for all the gold he can find in it. And there's lots of gold in those hills. Right? There's a lot of wisdom to be had that natural man can gain by reading Scripture. But he refuses to trust Jesus Christ as his Lord rather than pointing people to Christ He makes disciples of himself. Brothers and sisters, is this you? Are you willing to plunder the word of God for all the gold that is in it, but walk away without Christ? May it not be so. May it not be so. Now some have argued that this third element, this element of trust in faith, is somehow a work. That it's in addition... uh, that it's a work and that it's it's superfluous or it's an error that's been made in church history. And so let me emphasize this point. Faith is central to salvation precisely because it is not a work. Faith does not depend on anything we do. It is dependent entirely on the mercy and grace of God. He is the giver of life and we simply receive it. We are the beggars and he is the one with the wealth. But can you really say that you've received it if you do not delight in Christ? How can you say that you've received the gospel if it leaves you cold? How can you say you received it if you do not trust him? If you do not trust the man, Jesus Christ? This is where we've divorced, I think, uh, in our culture, mind and heart. There's this... um, uh, It says in Romans 10, for instance... That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe Him in your heart that God and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This concept of faith in Scripture is not simply what goes on in my head. It's not simply also what I feel. Right? That's the thing that the people react against. Oh, faith is just you know it's reacting against people just feeling things without any. Uh, grasp of true doctrine. But faith is is not, you don't divide it up. It's not sliced and diced. Faith in a person entails their whole being, their whole person. And so, yes, it includes knowledge. Yes, it includes assent. But it also includes trust. It includes all the affections and feelings that we have as a whole person. In the West, we've tried for generations now to act as if science and religion are two separate things. As if they serve two different gods. Or two different kinds of deity. As if logic and rationality operate in the sphere of science and material stuff and objective facts. And then that spirituality and emotions operate in the sphere of religion and subjective feeling. This duality, this slicing and dicing between these two things is not biblical. We're not robots, right? We're not robots, we're people. And we're also not uh, filled with uncontrolled passion regardless of what we think and know, right? These things are together. And so another way of saying this is that saving faith is based on objective facts of Christ's work for us and on seeing those facts as glorious, as beautiful, as delightful, as what we must have to walk with God. This again is one of the reasons why guys like Jordan Peterson are so compelling for many people while many preachers seem stale and out of touch because if nothing else, you, believe, you know that he believes what he says, right? He, has, he actually has the content of his message, the objective or the, the rational part mixed with heart. He's got heart in the game. He's putting it out there. You can tell he puts his heart in it. And so how much more should we as Christians both put, put both our hearts and our minds into it? The thing about Jordan Peterson is that he does not have Christ, right? He has truth but not leading to life. The difference between ministers of the gospel and other religious teachers is this, and this is verses 5 and 6, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Scripture is unequivocal that the way to God is through Jesus Christ. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. One of Jordan Peterson's tropes is to talk about the importance of being pointed toward heaven. right? And for him, it's important that you live in such a way that that's your direction, that's your aim, as opposed to being pointed toward hell. And he says that you can do that by speaking the truth and living rightly. You know, he's got his 12 rules to live. And, and in those 12 rules, he's trying to help you point yourself toward heaven. Other uh, wise men of this world have recognized that God, whoever or whatever he is, is the most beautiful and glorious and worthwhile thing that there is, right? So they, this is in, in, pagan, in pagan writing. You can see this. They recognize that God is the ultimate good. And so they exhort people to, to aim for Him. And all those things may be true. Jordan Peterson may be true so far as it goes, but it's only partly true. And this is where I started out by saying the best lie is always mixed with truth. They are not messengers of the Gospel. The Gospel is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's Christ. The, uh, John Piper has a wonderful or a book that I I will admit I have not read, Um, but the title is just wonderful. God is the gospel, right? God is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ. He's the one we should believe and worship and delight in. We cast our cares on him, not some sort of archetypal hero and not the highest good. In him, in Christ, are found all the riches of God's glory. And so as I close today, I want to leave you with just a couple last exhortations to help you to think about how we can delight in Christ. And one of them is, if you think back to the definition of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, one of them that we cannot get over is to read. Read. We are a people of the book. We must read our Bibles. Read your Bible. How can you delight in Christ if you don't even know him? If you don't know what he's like. We find out what Christ is like by reading the scriptures. Uh, a couple months ago, we started uh, Men of the Book groups for men. Men, if you're not part of a Men of the Book group, please join one. The whole point is for us to read authors that are turning our minds and affections to Christ and to stir each other up toward love for God, to, to, to meditate and to know to know Christ. And, and that leads me to my second Uh, exhortation meditate you must think about the words that are in scripture about the the words in in the books that you read and we must pray we must speak to god we need to pour our hearts out to god and finally we need to tell others when you delight in something you tell other people about it right you know that someone loves something if they're just always talking about it so let's talk about it let's tell other people about jesus let's pray Father God, we thank you for this incomparable gift that you've given to us in Christ Jesus, your son, in whom are all the riches of deity. Father, we pray that you would protect us from the many lies that, are, uh, that surround us in our time. We pray that we would grasp a hold of Christ and hold on dearly to him. And, uh, Father, I pray that, go, that we would go from here, uh, that you would bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.